Last week, we began looking together at the subject of fellowship. We said the picture the New Testament gives us of fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. We ended last week by looking at five signs of fellowship that were given in the New Testament. There they are. Evidence of unity, love expressed in action, ministry by all believers, accountability to one another, and spiritual growth of all believers. I imagine we look at those and we think, great, that looks good. Even if you're not a Christian, they probably look good to you. Who wouldn't want that kind of relational life? But some of us may look at the signs of fellowship and think, yeah, it sounds good. But it's not the kind of fellowship I've experienced. So having thought last week about the call to fellowship, this week we come to the challenge of fellowship. What are the obstacles or the roadblocks to biblical fellowship? What stops fellowship from happening? Or if it happens to some degree, what causes it to break down? What stops it developing and deepening? Why is it we often don't see those five signs of fellowship? Why is it Christian fellowship can often be weak or superficial? The Bible gives us some legitimate fellowship breakers. So, for example, we can't have fellowship with people who call themselves Christians but deny or twist the truth or defiantly disobey God and refuse to repent or trample all over Christ's church. In those situations, our fellowship with God means we have to break fellowship with certain people. So there are some legitimate reasons for breaking fellowship. In fact, in the kinds of situations I just mentioned, true Christian fellowship has already been broken. Any attempt at fellowship is not going to be genuine because God is being dishonored in the situation. But this morning we're not going to focus on those legitimate fellowship breakers. Instead, we're going to look at four illegitimate reasons why fellowship breaks down. Four wrong reasons for a lack of fellowship. But they are very common reasons. And being aware of them is the first step to overcoming them. As I said last time with those signs of fellowship, there may be more than these four obstacles, but there are at least these four in the New Testament. The first is growth. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we're told the church grew from about 120 to several thousand in a very short space of time. And although we might imagine the early church didn't have any problems, they did. Growth is a blessing, but it always brings challenges. In Acts chapter 6, we're told about one particular challenge to fellowship that resulted from the growth of the church. I'll be putting the other passages on the screen, but you might want to turn to this first one in your Bibles. Acts chapter 6. 
In the Church Bible, you'll find it on page 1098. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The early church took its fellowship seriously, and part of what fellowship involved for them was providing food for those in need. Remember, there was no welfare provided by the government in the ancient world. And widows were among the most vulnerable people in the church. The church undertook to provide for them. But whatever the system was for distributing the food, it was breaking down because of the growth in the church. The widows among the Hebraic Jews were not being overlooked because of some prejudice. They were being overlooked because the system for getting food to them couldn't cope anymore. Apparently it had been fine when there were only about 120 of them. But it isn't working anymore. And look here what the breakdown of the system was leading to. A breakdown in fellowship. The lack of organization was causing people to divide into different parties based on their background a Hebrew background or a Greek background. Even though the actual problem was nothing to do with people's background. We can imagine the Hebraic Jews beginning to say, we'd be better off without those Grecian Jews. We didn't have these problems before they came to the church. Why is this example in Acts helpful for us? It's helpful because it shows us growth always presents challenges to fellowship. Some of you here have been part of this church since the very earliest days. You can remember back to the time when the whole church body could fit in someone's living room. You can remember a time when you knew everybody in the church pretty well. But now you're feeling it ain't what it used to be. We've lost that sense of family. Last year, Megan and I attended the FIEC Leaders Conference. One of the speakers there was a pastor from a church in Bedford. And as far as I can tell, he's been the pastor there since the church started. 
At least he's been there for about 30 years. And he's seen the church grow from a handful to over 300 at the moment. So he's a good man to listen to about the different stages a church goes through. And this is how he describes the stages a church goes through as it grows. First, there's the small church. He classifies small as about 30 people. If God blesses that small church, it will become a medium-sized church. That's around 75 people. In a medium-sized church, it's still possible for everyone to know everyone else. And what's the next stage? We would expect large. But no, after medium comes awkward. He classifies a large church as about 300 people or so involved. By that point, the church will have adjusted to the fact that it's not small anymore. But in the awkward stage, that's from about 75 upwards, the church is in the process of adjusting. Those who have been there from the beginning may feel they're being neglected. They're not getting the attention they used to get. And they're probably right about that. They look around and now there are lots of people that they don't know. Maybe they see new people coming in who seem to be getting all of the attention. The trouble is, those people may not recognize that what's going on is the normal challenge of growth. And so resentment and division can begin to creep in. Under the ministry of Bill Patterson and then Tony, this church has grown from a handful to where it is today. From small in size to awkward in size. And that growth in numbers is a blessing from God. It's not something to regret. It's something to give thanks to God for It enables this church to expand its ministry. But it does present a challenge to our fellowship. True fellowship doesn't come as easily today as it did 30 years ago. There were less people then. Everybody had to be involved. But now it's easier to drift around the edges of the church body, to stay on the fringe. And for those who do help, it's easier to feel more and more stretched. There might be more people around, but there might not seem to be more helpers. It's important to realize these challenges are normal for a church of our size. The important thing is how we respond to the challenge. Notice how the apostles in Acts responded. They didn't just tell people to get along and be more considerate. They realized they needed to organize things better. Organization is not a bad thing. It's not an unspiritual thing. Growing numbers leads to a growing need for wise organization. And that's what the apostles do. In their case, it involved setting up a better system for getting the food to the widows. In our case here in Pelsall, it means being more organized about home groups putting more emphasis on home groups. We don't want anyone to fall through the cracks when it comes to being cared for and ministered to. We don't want anyone to be without opportunity to get to know others and to enter into deeper fellowship with others. 
Notice what Luke tells us about the outcome of this fellowship-saving reorganization in the church. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Of course, that's not a guarantee. The numerical growth of the church cannot be engineered. It's God's to give or to withhold as he pleases. But the point to notice is that in verse 1, the church had a crisis of fellowship on its hands. By verse 7, the obstacle had been overcome and the word of God continued to spread. The apostles did not abandon prayer and ministry of the word. Those things stayed central. And alongside that came some organization so that the church could continue to be united. As elders and as a group of home group leaders, we believe home groups are more than just an option. They're not just for those who are into that sort of thing. We believe they're crucial to the healthy fellowship of our church body. They provide a context for fellowship to happen in a way that it won't happen if we only come together here on a Sunday in a big group. Our Sunday services are also crucial to our fellowship. As a body, we meet around God's word. Together we submit to it, and together we respond with praise to God. But by themselves, our Sunday services are not sufficient for deepening fellowship. So we've organized home groups with two aims in view. First of all, care for each person in the fellowship. And second, the spiritual growth and involvement of each person in the fellowship. Care for each person in the fellowship. and The spiritual growth and involvement of each person in the fellowship. Now, as a team of elders, we are not naive enough to think that home groups will automatically deepen our fellowship. Home groups are not a silver bullet that solves the challenge of fellowship. But they're a necessary part of setting ourselves up for deepening fellowship. So what are the other obstacles to fellowship? Number two is Failure to grasp our true identity. Every human being has multiple identities. Maybe you're British. Though you might think of yourself more specifically as English. Maybe even more specifically as a Pelsol person or a Walsall person. One of our identities is tied to our passport or where we think of as home. Another identity is tied to our occupation or our lack of occupation. Teacher, accountant, bus driver, unemployed, retired. Or we might identify ourselves with what we most like to do. Support a football team, play golf, tinker with cars or model railways, or garden or play a musical instrument. In the run-up to the last election, David Cameron was labeled as posh. In some circles, that was what mainly identified him. Never mind whether he was a good leader or not, he was posh. 
And for some people, that was all they needed to know about it. Another identity is our marital status. Single, married, divorced, widowed. Sometimes people identify themselves according to their view on a secondary theological issue. Maybe the precise details of Christ's return. Or their view on certain spiritual gifts. We all have multiple identities. You might be an English guitarist who supports Walsall, votes green, has ten children, and believes in adult baptism by sprinkling. You might identify yourself with all those things. And I'd like to meet you if you're here. (laughs) Why am I mentioning this? Because our fellowship is a non-starter if we fail to grasp the one thing that truly identifies us. Listen to what the New Testament says about our identity as Christians. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we don't stop being male or female. We don't stop being British or German or whatever else. But we do receive a new identity that trumps all the others. We receive a new identity that decisively and eternally defines us. We belong to the family of God. Bought with the blood of Jesus. Filled with God's Holy Spirit. Heirs of an eternal inheritance. And we share that identity with every other man or woman who is in Christ. All our other identities are secondary to this one. But if we fail to see that, or if we forget it, if we give priority to one of our lesser identities, it becomes a significant obstacle to our fellowship. It leads us to focus on what makes us different from others in the church body. Instead of focusing on the one thing that binds us together in spite of our differences. Think of those people in your home group, if you've looked at the list. Those people who are so very, very different from you. Learn to see them as fellow children of God. Bought with the same blood you've been bought with. Filled with the same spirit you're filled with. Citizens of the same new heaven and earth, you're a citizen of. Don Carson says, we are God's people, sanctified by God, chosen by God, loved by God. We are his priesthood, his nation, his people. This is our identity. If we remember that, we will enter into fellowship a lot more easily and a lot more deeply. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul shows the link between our identity and our fellowship. 
Here there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If we get our true identity right, we're well on the way to getting fellowship right. A third obstacle. Failure to see the soul-winning attractiveness of fellowship. Some of us might be hearing all this talk about fellowship and thinking, but surely this is just a distraction from what we're really supposed to be doing. Evangelism. Sharing the good news. Didn't Jesus command us to make disciples? Isn't fellowship a luxury we don't have time for? If we think of fellowship as a distraction from evangelism, then we're failing to see the soul-winning attractiveness of fellowship. In God's plan, fellowship and evangelism are not two competing concerns for his church. They're both part of the same great goal we looked at last week, pointing men and women to King Jesus. Genuine Christian fellowship is a very attractive thing. It draws people in. It gains a hearing for the good news about Jesus. That's what we find in the book of Acts. Luke tells us the believers devoted themselves to the fellowship. And he goes on to describe what that looked like in their particular context. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The significance of these verses for us this morning is the fact that their fellowship was visible, they were being observed. And it was their fellowship that led to them enjoying the favor of all the people. And in the context of visible, attractive fellowship, Luke says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As Christians, we are called to spread the good news about Jesus. And so we need to recognize the soul-winning attractiveness of our fellowship. Genuine fellowship does not hinder the spread of the good news. It enhances it. A church that only focuses on evangelism to the neglect of fellowship is unlikely to have long-term success in evangelism. It will be unattractive to outsiders. The church might put on lots of special events. It might put countless hours into telling people about Jesus. But if outsiders come in 
and find the relationships between Christians are shallow and cold and brittle, if they find that Christians aren't caring for one another, if they notice that the weak members of the body are ignored or shoved to the side, why on earth would those outsiders want to stay? Sometimes we feel a need to gear everything towards the seeker. But what we need to do is let seekers get a genuine glimpse and flavor of our fellowship. Now that doesn't mean we try to fake fellowship. That's ugly and it's deceitful. We're talking here about authentic fellowship. Fellowship that is honest about its warts and its mistakes and its weaknesses. Fellowship that's willing to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. Fellowship that perseveres despite failures and disappointments. Nor does this focus on fellowship mean we make outsiders feel they're not welcome. They can't be in the club. True fellowship is not introverted. It always makes room for newcomers. True fellowship is always looking to welcome others in. True fellowship opens its doors so people can see the kind of relationships that they're not going to find anywhere else. So, for example, our home groups would be a great way to introduce people to Christian fellowship. Our groups are not primarily aimed at evangelism. But something like a home group meal every couple of months would be a great way for an outsider to see how Christians get along. Or maybe even how they struggle to get along and have to work at it instead of walking away from fellowship. It would be a great way for outsiders to see how the church loves and honors even its awkward and difficult members. The early church lived and ministered in a broken culture. This is how one theologian describes that culture. Life proceeded under the rule of delusion, without guidance, direction, or purpose, as a stroll in the dark. That could be a description of our time and culture. But the church has something different. We have a Savior who sets men and women free from darkness. We have the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us. We have an eternal future that gives us purpose today. And in Christ, we have a family to love us and build us up and challenge us and help us get up again when we fall. We have what the world needs. And they need to see that we have it. Francis Schaeffer said, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. And he was talking there about love between Christians. And he famously went on to say that love between Christians is the final apologetic. Now an apologetic is not the same as an apology. Christian apologetics is about defending and justifying our beliefs. So to say that fellowship is the final apologetic means our visible love and unity is the best defense or proof of the truth of Christianity. 
Genuine Christian fellowship gives powerful evidence that Jesus Christ changes lives. It backs up our claim that God the Holy Spirit is present and at work among his people. John chapter 17 records a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed that they would share in the fellowship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Twice in that prayer, Jesus mentions one of the results of Christian love and unity. It gives evidence to the world that the good news about Jesus is true. The point here is the world should be able to look at our fellowship and say, when I see those Christians together, I can believe the stuff they tell me about Jesus. And as we saw a few moments ago, the book of Acts tells us that's exactly what was happening with the early church. True fellowship has great soul-winning attractiveness. And if we fail to see that, we set up a false contest between fellowship and evangelism. And as a result, our evangelism suffers. We look at one more obstacle to fellowship. And I think it's the biggest obstacle of them all. Attachment to our idols of pride, comfort, and security. The kind of fellowship described in the New Testament is demanding. It's costly. As we saw last week, it involves self-sacrifice. Now, in the long run, true fellowship blesses us deeply. It's probably the main channel God uses to transform us, to mold and shape us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As our fellowship deepens, we experience levels of love and care that we won't find anywhere else. But it is still true that it costs us to enter into that kind of fellowship. The kind of fellowship where we're accountable to our brothers and sisters. The kind of fellowship where we're called to confess and rebuke and forgive. The kind of fellowship where we love and minister to people who are really pretty unlovely. People like ourselves. One writer says that when we understand the New Testament picture of fellowship, we might be tempted to get off the bus that takes us to fellowship. He goes on to say, relationships even between believers come packaged with problems. To pursue relationships is to open ourselves to hurt misunderstanding and inconvenience. For our relationships are inevitably influenced by our sin. 
when we hear words like that, we might begin to rethink our enthusiasm for fellowship. And the reason we might want to step back is because we all love comfort and security. And so even if we long for the blessings of fellowship, we hold back. Because it sounds like it might make us uncomfortable. We might have to let go of the security of being unknown by other people. It's easier to keep people at arm's length than to let them see what we're really like. Or what if someone opens up to us? Will we have to try and help them? How much time and energy might that take? When we let those things keep us on the fringes of fellowship, we are bowing to the idols of comfort and security. What about the idol of our pride? Pride that looks around the church and says, I don't need those people. I can deal with things by myself. And anyway, how could these people help me? They don't even know as much as I do. What do they have to offer to me? They don't even have it together themselves. Entering into fellowship involves humbling ourselves to stand on a level with people who might seem to be beneath us. It means accepting help from people we don't think can help us. It means letting others see that we're not as strong as we would like people to think. Then there's the idol of leisure. We could put this alongside the idol of comfort. It's been called the leisure virus. Our free time is our time. We don't want it being sucked up and meeting other people's needs or bearing other people's burdens. One writer says, the leisure virus makes us mere spectators rather than participants in God's purposes. Leisure subtly persuades us to invest our time not necessarily in evil, but in irrelevance. The leisure virus keeps us on the fringe of fellowship. It keeps us from committing ourselves to the body. It keeps us from forming meaningful relationships in the church. And in the end, it leaves us drifting and spiritually superficial. But the leisure virus is an epidemic. So the same writer points out that some of the least demanding churches are now in the greatest demand. What does the New Testament tell us about these idols? Well, it shouldn't surprise us to hear that these idols need to be torn out of our hearts. First of all, we're told that our relationship with God is never just about me and God. We were not saved to be spiritual hermits. God works in your life so you can pass it on to others. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. 
When God blesses me, it's not just for me. It's for me to pass on to others. But what if I refuse? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we're going to obey God and deepen our fellowship, we have to break our attachment to our idols of pride, comfort, and security. Let me close with a challenge and then a picture. First of all, a challenge. It's been said that as with the tango, it takes two to fellowship, and not everyone wants to dance. So this is the challenge. When it comes to fellowship, do you want to dance? Will you personally commit yourself to fellowship? Some of you have been attending Sunday services here for years, but you've never become members. You've never committed yourselves to the life of this body. You don't have any real input into the fellowship of the body. What's holding you back? Is it an idol of some kind? Is it fear of getting too close to people? Are people getting too close to you? But the New Testament is clear. Fellowship is the privilege and responsibility of every believer. God did not save you to float on the fringes. He called you out of a lost world to add you in to his family. He does not bless you and minister to you so you can keep it all to yourself. He has not made you so that you're able to overcome sin all by yourself. He has not made you strong enough to cope with life all by yourself. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is wise not to jump into fellowship too quickly. It's a good idea to be careful when you start attending a church body. Figure out the emphasis of that church body before you commit yourself to it. 
But after you've got a reasonable feel for what that church is all about, it's time to either take the plunge and dive in, or if there are red flags about the leadership or the doctrine, then it's time to move on. Staying indefinitely with one foot in the fellowship seems to be the one option that isn't open to us as Christians. When it comes to fellowship, do you want to dance? Some of us have our name on the membership role, but we are equally in need of this challenge. Having our name on a roll means nothing at all if we bail out of meaningful fellowship. Some of us who are members may need to recommit ourselves to fellowship. Or, if we're unable or unwilling to do that, we may decide we really ought to have our name removed from the membership role. That was the challenge. We'll finish with the picture. Our boys have a Winnie the Pooh book called Pooh's Best Place. That's quite an intricate plot, as you would imagine, but I'll try to summarize it for you. All of Pooh's friends have their own best place. Pooh doesn't. So he goes off to find his own which in the end turns out to be where all his friends are. Now, if you're anything like me, your best place might be a little isolated cottage overlooking a lake, the sort of place you get to via a few miles of single-track roads. Splendid isolation might be an attractive prospect for some of us. But it's worth asking, when the Bible describes our eternal future, when the Bible paints a picture of the new heaven and earth, what image does it give us? The final two chapters of the book of Revelation, we find God's best place is described as a city. Yes, it's a city without smog or traffic congestion or sin, But it is highly significant that the eternal home of God's people is not a place where we all have our own private cottage down our own private lane. The new heaven and earth is a place of community. We will live and worship and serve together in a city, the new Jerusalem. Our eternal future is going to be an eternal future of fellowship. Together, we will serve and glorify the King of Kings. And that, of course, is what we're called to do here and now, in this life. We are called to fellowship here because fellowship is at the heart of God's plan for his people. We were made for fellowship. Fellowship with God that leads us into fellowship with God's people.
We're going to close our service by responding to God's word as we sing Lord of the Church.